Hey, Cozy Robots, I'm Mike McCarg. And I'm Grace Vaughn. And if you're watching live on what? Facebook Live or YouTube or Twitch or Twitter. Gosh, we stream so many places. Uh, you might notice uh, cameras pointed a different direction. It's just, I felt like changing things up. I was a little bored with the other way. So this it's is exciting. My chill summer podcast vibes. It is not <laughs> chill at all, by the way. It is so hot in LA today. We got. Having our uh, first heat wave of the year. Exploring those triple digits. Very exciting. Anyway, this is the Cozy Robot Show. So if you're not watching live, you don't know what I'm talking about. That's okay. That's what most people do. <laughs> most people listen on Apple Podcasts. Uh, comes out Wednesdays on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all the places people listen to podcasts. And this is a program about empathetic skepticism. Learning to get in touch with our feelings and understand the world better at the same time. Two great tastes that taste great together. And uh, Grace, it's so wild seeing you on a screen when I have just recently seen you in person. I know. Uh, for the first time. We had our Quantum Spin Studios retreat uh, for the first time ever last week. And Grace, how, how many hours were you in Los Angeles? I was in Los Angeles technically for Three days, meaning okay. the plane touched down that not, night of Thursday. I was there all of Friday, and then I left. I was then I left early Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. So, so all in all, a long one day. <laughs> Two sleeps in one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Two sleeps in one day. Next time we're gonna be out longer. It was so much fun to see you and Victory and Tanner. Um, and it does feel very weird to see you on a screen. And Victory was telling me when she was driving me back to the hotel after we all hung out, um, she was like, when you get back to your house, you are going to wake up and you're going to think that was a fever dream. Mm. And she was so right. I, I'm being on the computer with you now really feels like going to LA was like, just never happened. <laughs> just a, a never happened. <laughs> it was totally dreamlike. Uh, it was pretty amazing. I'm very, I hope to return very soon. Well, it's funny you say that because speaking of dreamlike experiences, <gasps> we're going to have one of those tonight and that it's going to be wonderful. Yes. Uh, you know, a few weeks ago we had on one of my favorite human persons, in the whole world, Courtney Leak. And uh, Courtney Leak was a big hit with our audience. And I'm going to read a bio in a second for those of you who weren't part of that amazing experience. And we said, hey, Cozy Robots, what would you like to hear Courtney talk about? And the overwhelming favorite response was just therapy in general. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to dig into therapy with a therapist which neither Grace or I are. <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, to do that well, we're going to invite Courtney Leak, LCSW and LIS-CP, who is a dynamic therapist, wellness curator, and empowerment speaker. Courtney specializes in working with those who have experienced trauma, grief and loss, attachment disorders, relationship complications, and the mental health needs of marginalized populations. You can follow Courtney on Instagram at CourtneyLeakLCSW and on Twitter at CourtneyLCSW. And you can learn more about Courtney's work by visiting her website at CourtneyLeakLCSW. 
lcsw.com. Welcome to the Cozy Robot Show, Courtney. Hi. It's so good to have you back. I'm so excited to be back. Hi, Cozy Robots. Thanks for liking me. <laughs> you know, I, I do believe with with absolute sincerity that's it's just the kindest and most thoughtful assemblance of people that has ever formed mm. an audience for a show before. So uh, well, that feels be even folks. better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, good. they're good, good folks and good judges of character. I like it. Other than they listen to a show with me. No, sorry. <laughs> My I know. no. Is that self-deprecating humor? It's a tough habit to break. You know. <laughs> I don't believe that stuff anymore. You still say it. Mm, We're okay. going to get into all kinds of stuff. The cycle, the psychology of self-deprecating humor and, uh, or maybe we won't. I don't know. But we're going to talk about therapy tonight. <laughs> we'll get into some stuff. Just <laughs> we'll like get whatever into some stuff, stuff. We feel like we're, we're going to get into get some into stuff. Um, and I'm going to start us off with the first question of the night. Um, I'm going to pose this to you, Courtney, at Mrs. Too Much on Twitter asks, as a person who struggles with people pleasing, mm. how do you get over the instinct to tell your therapist what they want to hear? Mm. Ooh, yeah. So I don't know if getting over things is the goal to doing things. I think a lot of times we'll say, well, when I am, then I'll do. And what I have found is that it's the doing that gets me there. And so sometimes I have to just choose that this is how I'm going to show up in this space. Maybe even bringing it up to the therapist and say, I struggle with people pleasing, which means I lie to you. Mm. And so I'm going to work really hard to not do that in this relationship because I want to start practicing that in relationships that may not be as safe as the one you have with your therapist. So I'm going to start practicing and I'm also going to maybe hold myself accountable that if I do tell an untruth or if I manipulate the, my answer to please you, I'm going to call myself on it in the moment. Mm. And so say, nope, you know what? That's actually not the truth. I didn't like that intervention we did. Mm -hmm. It wasn't mm -hmm. helpful because your therapist should be a safe enough place where you can try those hard things and get the response you deserve, which then over time will cause you to crave that response. And when people give you a different one, you will be adverse to it. You'll be like, oh no, I don't, that doesn't sit with me anymore. I can't tolerate that. Um, type of mistreatment anymore. Hmm. So yeah, so I think telling your therapist the truth and calling yourself out. Um, and if your therapist for some reason doesn't handle that well, then that's good information to know that maybe that's not the therapist for you. Okay. Mm -hmm. That actually brings me mm -hmm. to a second question that follows up right uh, with what you were saying, Courtney. Landon on Twitter asks... I was seeing a therapist, but it just wasn't working. I couldn't tell if it was me or him. I want to try someone else, but I don't know if it would be any different. How should I go about seeking a therapist slash finding the theoretical framework st or style of therapy that works best for me? Mm. Yeah, I think it's totally okay to interview several therapists. So go on to some sort of site or possibly con if you're using insurance, contact your insurance um, and ask for a list of names and then do a search on Google 
do a search. Maybe they have a professional Instagram or something of that nature. And then when you've narrowed that down to, let's say, four, three to four, request a, um, a consult with them. And most therapists will do a brief consult. Like I'll do a 15 minute consult where I'm going to ask some questions and then allow you some time to answer some questions to see if this still feels like a fit. Mm-hmm. And being okay kind of not committing to any one therapist till you've, until you've talked to several and feel like you've made the most informed decision. Hmm. There's so much like work to do the work, I think, for many people. You know, I, I, uh, yeah. I was reading uh, a social media post um, about sensitive children and the relationship mm. between a, being a sensitive child and being a people pleaser. Because with very sensitive children, it's not even necessarily that uh, the caregivers or parents were like domineering. It's sensitive mm-hmm. children were sensitive to micro expressions yes. and vocal tone and tiny little cues yes. and could kind of uh be a good child by mm-hmm. anticipating and predicting what would kind of cause their caregiver to have the least stress and display the smallest levels of discomfort and as social mammals that's such an easy habit for us to get into we have so much brain matter devoted not only to feelings but deducing and empathizing and understanding the feelings of people around us. And in my own life, um, the work couldn't start in therapy until I kind of did my own work of learning to uh, hear what I wanted kind of, I'm uh, I'm tapping my belly right now, Mm -hmm. but you know, um, learning to pay attention when, I had a want or I had a need because I've had really, really, really great therapeutic relationships where um, I told good stories in therapy and that therapist felt like that relationship was going really, really well. And what I was doing was being a sensitive person and trying to figure out how to have my therapist have a good session. Mm -hmm. And that's not my therapist's fault, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not I'm not putting that on any of those people. It it took uh, different types and methodologies of therapy for me to kind of push through that and a bunch of uh, mindfulness and embodiment work on my own you know learning like to to know like it's been hard for me to learn when uh, a boundary is being pushed it's really Mm. easy for me to just push over all my boundaries to please people and paying attention to those those little feelings I'm learning to like pay attention like I might feel a little a little heat underneath my eyelids or I might feel just like did I eat something spicy for lunch and only felt it for a half second? What happened? But there are these little sensations mm-hmm. I'm learning to pay attention to, not so I can avoid being, you know, manipulated or bulldozed. I'm to that, but learn to actually share honestly about my thoughts and feelings and preferences in key times, like establishing a rapport with a therapist. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think that is more important than their theoretical framework, honestly, Um, because most therapists are going to have like their main theoretical framework. But hopefully over time with ongoing trainings and continuing education, you should have a smorgasbord of things that you can use to work with a client and meet their need. It's really about rapport because that is where trust will come in and that is where it will feel safe enough to be really vulnerable and honest with your therapist. So not Mm -hmm. having a good rapport with your therapist will hinder the work. 
I, I, I'm so happy you said that. Uh, I've noticed in my circles and online, I'll see people fixate on a therapeutic tool like EMDR mm-hmm. or somatic techniques or embodiment. All of these are fine mm-hmm. things, right? But it's like one thing in a toolbox. Right. And a good therapist has more than one tool in their toolbox, and you would not hire a, 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 a handy person to work around your house just because they had a great hammer. Right. Like their overall experience and skill set is far more important than any one tool. And um, I guess because mental health is so complex, I mean, at least human psychology is complicated mm-hmm. and it involves a lot of insider language. People feel overwhelmed and maybe learning about techniques kind of gives us a, a sense of comfort and familiarity and know what we're looking for. But I think I think you have said it so well there. <laughs> Um, that the overall rapport and the overall relationship with a therapist is so much more important than any any one paradigm or, or technique. Yeah, absolutely. So this next question is from Eric from our private Discord. And Eric asks kind of the opposite of what we were just talking about. Eric wants to know what the red flags are, if there are any, that we should be looking out for when we're looking for a therapist. Mm. Yeah. So feedback that I, so I ask clients often in the consult, have, have they ever had therapy? And if they have, what worked and what didn't work? That's a common consult question for me. And I often hear um, things about pushing your own agenda, um, interrupting and kind of speaking over the client. Like there are times where I know I can see the thing five minutes in, but they need 15 minutes to tell me the story. Mm-hmm. And I need to sit there and hear the story because part of the healing process is through the narrative. And so I think sometimes therapists will get very like, I know what it is. I know what the issue is. We're on it and cut the person off, which then makes them feel minimized because I'm pretty sure part of a struggle is not being heard to begin with. A lot of us come to therapy simply because we felt not seen and not heard in our lives. And so for a therapist to then cut them off and constantly interrupt and tell them what to think, um, that can be um, concerning. I think other red flags are things around like timeliness. Um, like, mm-hmm. you know, are they always late to sessions? Um, are they distracted in sessions? I've had clients tell me that their old therapist was falling asleep in oh sessions. My. And wow. we'll say it happened a few times. And I'm just like, oh, let's talk about how you got to a few. <laughs> I mean, that's bonkers. I mean, what happened for you when you went back after the second nap? Right. Uh, what what's going is... on for you with your own boundaries where you're like, I'm How going would you just come on this come podcast back. and attack me personally? <laughs> or come back after you took two naps on my dime. For real. Courtney, after I paid that you reminds me. I, I, I paid you enough twice. Uh, that actually reminds me of a story my friend told me. She had never gone to therapy before. And she was so, so nervous about going to therapy. And she 
was sitting in uh, the therapist's office. This was far, you know, before uh, the pandemic. And um, her therapist was so late that the appointment just never happened. And for my friend, it was her first time taking a big step, taking Mm -hmm. care of her mental health. And and as someone who... um, deals with mental illness myself, it can be really, really excruciatingly difficult to get off the couch, Mm -hmm. get out of bed and make the call and, and do the research and find someone and then go to the consultations and find someone that you feel comfortable with. And my friend, uh, I, I have, I don't know if she's in therapy now, but for months afterwards was like, therapy's not for me Mm. because she felt and again, that's like a rather that could be con- uh, seen as a, a rather drastic uh, uh, decision to be like, well, if this one therapist didn't work, then all therapy is not for me. That, but she was in a such dire need, right. and she felt completely dropped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that's it's actually really resonates with me with me that you would bring up uh, a therapist that's timely and a therapist that doesn't fall asleep yeah, when you're talking to yeah. them. That feels yeah. like bare minimum yeah. stuff. Well, I think we also have to consider that um, a couple of things. A lot of like a lot of us are doing what we do as a career because of something within us that is. It's, it's doing some healing work within us. Mm-hmm. That's true mm-hmm. in a lot of careers. And mm-hmm. so people who are drawn to therapy or being therapists are more than likely people with something in their history. And if they are not doing their own work, that can be a red flag in itself because we are mere human beings. And sure. we are human beings who, if we're not doing our own work and then holding space for others day in and day out for their pain on top of it, that can really create a dangerous cocktail. And so I think um, I don't have a problem sharing with people that I am a therapist in my own therapy, but some sort of way of knowing that they hold themselves accountable would be a good question to ask. Because are you falling asleep because you have poor boundaries and you are seeing 17 people in a day? Um, Are you late because you are struggling with your personal life or you don't know how to, um, again, set good boundaries with your clients and get off in time to rest and catch your breath, go to the restroom, have a snack before your next client. And so you're running over all the time. Are there some things there that are causing the therapist to not be able to practice what they preach? Because we are mm-hmm. mere human beings. And if we're not taking care of ourselves, we are likely to mess up. But like you're saying, part of that is like there are some professions where messing up is a bigger deal than others. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's really mm-hmm. important for therapists to be responsible with what we are able to do. You know, be responsible for this gift that we've been called into. Something that comes up for me as you share that, Courtney, is I have a lot of friends who um, work in mental health. Mm-hmm. And the ones I know that are just truly outstanding 
in that work are the ones who just like kind of know how to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, if I, if I think kind of a, 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 a meta framing for what I'm looking for in therapy, I'm looking for someone who can kind of show me how to take better care of myself. And so it, it, it seems there's like an instructive element there. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's been times in my life where I've been falling asleep in meetings and that, that has right. been when I've had undiagnosed medical issues mm -hmm. that I didn't take the time to work on. That's been times when I've been trying to do more than was healthy for me to do. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm falling asleep in meetings, that's a giant, giant warning alarm right. for me as a person. And uh, you just kind of want a therapist <laughs> who knows how to take that level of care for themselves. Otherwise, how could they possibly mm -hmm. help uh, kind of coach and guide and facilitate that own process? Right in your own life. Wow. Yeah, but I think it's counterintuitive to being a therapist. Especially mm -hmm. so I know for me um who has carried a lot of scripts around um not being enough. And then finally I am able to help people save lives sometimes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um have people um, come to me for support and care. If I am not doing my own work around that, but then also, I also know what it's like to have people not show up. And so when mm, you get six right. voicemails of people sobbing, saying, I just need somebody to talk to, this is my last hope, you're gonna call all six of them back and you're gonna schedule every single one of them. Mm -hmm. So it's a hard, it's, it's, it's hard. It is hard to hear someone just in such acute pain and then also have to say, I am on vacation and I don't have any openings until July 1st. Right. When you're really scared about where, what level they might be at in their desperation. It's mm -hmm. hard. It really does. It does lend to saying yes more than you should. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a hard one. Yeah, and it's not taught like we. I mean, I feel like there was a chapter on self care somewhere in grad school, but it wasn't taught to us what that should really look like, how we should really enact that. And I remember going through my um, different like practicums and internships in grad school. And we would all be talking about how, you know, people had 40 and 50 people on their caseload and community mental health and wow. all these wow. crazy things. And they were just like, yeah, the life of a social worker. Like, and then we would read that chapter on self-care. Like, oh my, it's gosh. not necessarily a thing that you're taught. Mm hmm. Hmm. So yeah, it's a journey, which is why doing your own work is, I think, so important for therapists. I want to share a comment from, let me see if I can do this the cool way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean, Mike? Like, yes, okay, wait, am I doing watching, it? They get it on screen. Everybody okay. else has to read it. Natalie, <laughs> Natalie is watching on YouTube and Natalie says, I've wanted to start therapy for a while, but have had a lot of hesitation. This is helping a lot to understand mm. what to expect and what I will need. 
Mm-hmm. Very cool message. Thank you so much for tuning in, Natalie, and for everyone else who is tuning in tonight. I am reading the chat. So hello and welcome. We are so glad that you are here live. Uh, and for those I forgot to even mention that. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. No worries at all. Oh, my gosh. Uh, we've got so many questions, so we wanted to jump right in. But I will let everybody know that. If you're listening to this on Wednesdays, when the podcast is released, we do go live on Mondays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. And that is why I am able to read awesome comments live. So thank you all for tuning in tonight. And without further ado, I'm going to jump into the next question. Go for it. All right. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. Norma Grace on our private Discord, asks this. On the understanding that boundaries are ways to protect existing relationships, what would an acceptable boundary look like for myself to a friend who desperately needs therapy and knows it? The boundary being that friends can't continue to spend extended periods of time with them until they seek help slash the therapy that they need. Asking for an emotionally exhausted friend. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, that sounds like the boundary. You get to choose your level of wellness. And I get to choose how much I can participate in this relationship based on your choice. Mm -hmm. So if you are choosing to not do the work that it sounds like this person recognizes they need to do, then you are also choosing to have reduced interaction with me. And that makes me sad. And I respect your choice. Mm -hmm. If you choose to do the work and lean in and you need some support for that, there probably will be more interaction I can have because I see you doing the work and I'm cheering you on and I just have more space for that. And so that that is my boundary. And I know that can feel so harsh when someone is suffering. Mm. And sometimes people's addiction to their suffering is what the work really needs to be. Mm. You know, we talked about that a little time last time. Yeah. Like if you know that there is something different and you have the resources, if you know you need something and you have the resources and you're you're choosing not to pursue it. Like that isn't, it's not fair to me to continue to like serve myself up, to be hurt, to be disappointed, to be worried. If you are choosing what's best for you, then I get to choose what's best for me. Hmm. Right. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Say more about that, Mike. It It just. Well, I, I, uh, I haven't always been an author podcaster. That's I didn't I wasn't nine years old and I said one day I'm gonna write books and make podcasts about suffering and difficult things. Uh, that's not it was you know um, I had a real uh, helping rescuing personality and I went through this kind of the story of my first book. I went through a, a, a religious transition and it was very difficult and I said, wow, lots of people face this difficulty so I start talking about it publicly. And I had no experience with what being a public figure would be like. I'd never thought about that ever. And I started getting emails and cards and letters and phone calls. I'm going to share my phone calls 
after speaking events from people in crisis of a particular type in which I'd experienced, but had no professional qualifications to help people with. And the good news is I knew I didn't have professional qualifications, right? But mm -hmm. I thought I can listen and I can direct to other um, support options, right? Mm -hmm. Where people can actually get help that they need. Um, but I uh, did that so much, so many tens and dozens of hours per week mm -hmm. that Dang. it started to affect my mental and physical health. And it got worse when it, I made it my job. Now, I was a very popular and beloved author podcaster because I would stand after I did an event, I would stand there for three hours, five mm. hours, six hours, mm. oh my and God. talk to every single person as long as they needed to talk to someone. And I'm not saying I regret that, but I'm, I am saying that that pattern of behavior both put me in the hospital mm -hmm. with a heart condition um, and wasn't sustainable because I spent so much time trying to care for everybody else. I didn't ever take any care of me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this this most recent season of my life, my work has started to reflect that in that I'm trying to take care of me and my wife and my children. And even my wife and my children I take care of by taking care of kind of me first, yes. like oxygen mask here to lead with. And... Um, it's so easy. It feels good to be there for mm -hmm. people. It really does. Um, but if we don't nurture the capacity to set boundaries, we will only hurt ourselves and inadvertently listen to me. I say this experience, other people as well. Yes, yes. That's, that's the sad part. That kind of helper thing, when they make that your whole identity... You don't actually, you don't actually help people over time. Right. You just have this like really juicy moment where everybody's kind of suffering together, mm -hmm. and um, suffering's gonna come. That's just part of life. Mm -hmm. So if suffering's automatic. I I'm interested now in pursuing, you know, wellness and well being. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Not just not just living in that suffering either with myself or with other people. And again, that doesn't mean like I'm not there for my friends. It doesn't mean that I don't carve out time in my life to interact with members of the public in that way. But it means I have really tight and clear and defined boundaries around that that allow me to do the work I do, not only today, but hopefully for as long as I feel like doing it and I'm alive. Yes, because I think that's the other thing. It's not, like you said, it's not sustainable. And I tell people the space between your truth and your boundary is where resentment will grow. Mm. And so if you don't want to start resenting this friend, then your truth and your boundary have to align. So if your truth is, I'm sick of Caroline and her shit, she knows she needs to go to therapy. This is ridiculous. Like why I can't mm -hmm. leave my home and be in her home for three hours every day. Like if that's your truth, if you're at that level of aggravated, but your boundary is sure, Caroline, I'm on my way. This space right here yeah. is where you're going to start resenting her. And the more you resent her, the less you can be a good friend to her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That resentment. That resent and it. A poison, it's poison a pill. poison. 
It is, I, I have seen very few people, once resentment has taken hold, flush it completely out of a relationship. Mm. And so I'm really, I really encourage people, let your truth and your boundary align so that you do not resent the people that you love. And listen to me, helpers and savior personalities. You attract those kind of relationships into your life in that behavior. Mm -hmm. That's why you feel so tired. Mm -hmm. That's why that resentment can build is because if this person has many people in their lives and they send lots of texts and you're the one who's always like, yeah, I'll be right there. Mm -hmm. I'll be right there. I'll be right there. While you're saying to yourself, why do they always text me? Right. Right. <laughs> well, right. Because, you know, you back to our earlier mm -hmm. thing, like you got to learn to listen to that belly. You got to learn to listen to your gut and your gut says, I, I would have rather stayed home and talked to my spouse mm -hmm. or my partner or, or my damn Netflix self show. or myself. Yes. <laughs> I just don't want to go. It's okay to not want to show up for everyone all mm -hmm. the time in order to show up for yourself. Yeah. Mm, thank you, Courtney. <laughs> On that note, we have to go to ads. All right, it's time to show up for our sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, be right back. I have such fun sponsors to talk to you about tonight. Uh, I'm looking for moments of joy in my life these days. And uh, this sponsor, KiwiCo, just brings me joy. It is learning. It is fun. It is new experiences in a box that KiwiCo calls a crate. So what Kiwi does is they are redefining the future of play by making it engaging, enriching, and seriously fun. They create hands-on projects designed to expose kids of all ages, and I'm certainly one of them, to concepts in science, technology, engineering, art, and math, which you may have heard called STEAM before. KiwiCo is a Mountain View, California company, and they help kids build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills and have a blast while doing it. Sounds like a perfect compliment to the Cozy Robot Show for me. So uh, the way it works, you sign up for what they call a line. These are age-appropriate and can be in different uh, areas of emphasis. Some are more science and engineering focused. Some are more art focused. Some are a blend of the two. And gosh, they are so much fun. They're delivered right to your doorstep. And every monthly crate comes with absolutely everything you need to do the project. That means really detailed, kid-friendly instructions. It means all, and I do mean all the supplies. They even have like an expanded kind of magazine to help you learn more and explore the concept more deeply. I've done a bunch of these and built, uh, you know, high-end uh, audiophile headphones and built a ukulele, built a robotic arm and a walking robot. Uh, there's uh, bubble kits, there's swirling paint kits, there's lots and lots and lots of different experiences that are so much fun. Uh, they're absolutely amazing. So with KiwiCo's hands-on art and science projects, kids can have fun learning, building, and making. It's everything needed to make STEAM seriously fun, delivered right to your doorstep. The crates, again, have absolutely everything you need to get started. So why not get started with your first month free 
on select crates by going to kiwico.com slash cozy robots. That's right, the first month free. That's a new offer. That's kiwico.com slash cozy robots. I'd also like to share with you a podcast uh, that I'm excited about learning about. And um, there's a new podcast coming that explores the inner workings of our minds and better ways to connect with ourselves, just like we do right here on the Cozy Robot Show. So this new podcast is from Pushkin, and it's called A Slight Change of Plans. And it's a show about that, about change. And on the program, behavioral scientist Dr. Maya Shikar uh, asks a question. What exactly happens when we find ourselves on the brink of change? The show features incredible stories from the likes of Tiffany Haddish, Hillary Clinton, Casey Musgraves, and lesser-known guests as well, like a young cancer research in the throes of a stage four diagnosis and a black jazz musician who convinced KKK members to leave the Klan. You'll come away thinking a bit differently about change in your own life. Now, stick around to the end of this podcast episode, and we'll actually play a sneak preview for you, and then you can subscribe to A Slight Change of Plans wherever you get your podcasts. So this next question is, first first and foremost, I have to say, Cozy Robots, you came out in numbers for this subject. We always get amazing questions from you guys, but we talk about therapy one time and it's I'm like sifting through the flood of questions that we got. Um, and I shouldn't be surprised because um, you, you're you a very emotionally intelligent group, I would say. So many fascinating, wonderful questions. We're going to jump into one of those right now. Uh, at BrickLep on Instagram asks, okay, so the way she phrased it or they phrased it is uh, a little difficult because they sent in the statement slash question via the Instagram DM box. So I'll read it how it is, but it's less of a question, more of a comment. And I would love to hear Courtney and Mike riff off. Okay. So here it goes. A thought starter. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's like a prompt. Um, I know I need it. They are referencing therapy, but I'm afraid I won't be quote unquote good at it. Mm. How does that make you feel? Blank stare, dot, dot, dot. So what are your thoughts, Courtney, about being good at therapy? Oh, um, yeah. So if there's a grade giving being given out for therapy, I probably at best get a C. <laughs> really? Oh my gosh! I'm I shocked by show this. Up sometimes I'll be like, I already know what's wrong with me. Let me just tell you what it is, <laughs> and then you can tell me how I need to do better. And then I'm not gonna do it. Like, <laughs> it's like there is no being good at it. Therapy right. should mm-hmm. be the most objective place you go. Like it, there should there should be no grade because there's nothing to grade against. Right. So when people come to me and they're like, you know, there's there's the client that's like went back over to his house, sis. I'm like, all right, let's start there. And it's the fifteenth mm-hmm. time 
where they have come in and they are set and we have role played it and we have brought in all the other representatives of who this relationship could be. And we've done EMDR and we've done the things. And at the end of the day, when their loins tingle, they call that number because it always answers and they get their fix. And that's mm. okay. Mm. There's no grade. Like therapy should be the place where you get to come and figure it out. Mm. Not because I'm dragging you somewhere, not because I'm trying to trick of the hand and convince you of something else. You should get to just come and sit in it and move around and, and play around with ideas and ways to do it until you figure it out. Mm-hmm. That's the goal. Because then once you finally figured it out, once you've gotten there at your own pace, that's when it's integrated. That's yeah. when it's that's when it's solid. That's when you're clear about it. And so that's going to be different for every single person. And it's going to be different around every single topic. There are things that my therapist brings up and I'll be like, nope, not ready. Mm-hmm. 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 And I've been going to therapy since I was 19. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, nope, not ready. Because I'm not. I get to go at my own pace. I get to figure it out. And if my therapist is judging me, that is not my therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, not that I'm projecting yeah. judgment, because I think sometimes we do that. But if my therapist is truly a an objective place for me to lay things down and look at them and move through them, Mm-hmm. We can take our time. There's no grade for that. Mm-hmm. So you'll be great at it. And a tip from a fellow therapy participant. Maybe a good place to start is where the idea that you're supposed to be good at therapy is coming from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because we get a lot. We've gotten several questions in the past about all kinds of topics and people will write in, well, how how do I not fail at this thing? For instance, we had um, we had an episode about books and someone wrote in how I'm not a good reader. Mm. How can I be a better reader? How can I? And that's just one of many examples. And that's what this question reminds me of this feeling of like, well, I might fail and Courtney what I'm hearing you say is that that's just not even a possibility that's not even in the cards Mm, no I just don't believe that failing at therapy is a thing you may not have a good rapport with a therapist you may not reach the goal that you wanted to reach with a certain therapist or around a certain topic but that's not a failure I think we've got to start getting really clear about what failing is. Because for Mm -hmm. me, failing means that, like, that's done. Like, I can't do that again. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we failed at that. A lot of things that we call failure are things that we messed up at once. And now we've decided (laughs) we failed. Right. And it's like, are you done with it? Like, are you never going to do it again? Because some things I failed and I'm like, I'm never doing that again. And that's okay. And that's a failure that I've learned from. But some things I messed up and then I got my shit together and I did it again and I did fine. So I never failed at it. I'm so tired of the cultural normalization expectation around 
performance and perfectionism. Mm -hmm. We all think about everything and like, am I great at it or am I bad at it? Right. Like, how about did you enjoy it? Right. How about did it like, did it put a smile on your face? Did it help you take a deeper breath? I, in my backyard right now, have four pots full of plants in various stages of distress. I am not a good gardener. I love gardening. It brings me a lot of joy and peace and satisfaction. And I'm going to learn mm-hmm. to be better at it over time. But right now, now most plants I put in the ground, they do just fine. But most plants I put in a pot, like it's going to be a season of challenge and difficulty for that organism. Uh, but I want to learn to do it well. And I... I for that time, for that season when the weather's perfect and they're in there and they're beautiful, they bring me a lot of joy. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm I'm finding more and more of the things I love the most in life. I'm just not any good at them. And so many things I've done so long, I've done without enjoyment because I have aptitude. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten all these messages uh, from our culture and from family systems and all those kind of things that the most important thing is aptitude and accomplishment and i you know there's so many things i would say that i have failed at um and it just and and the the standard to which i'm playing failure applying failure is absurd right it means it was not not just not a home run it wasn't a record-breaking drive that went in a record book right well it didn't do that i failed and that it'll just make you miserable yeah yeah and it'll stop you from learning you know what i mean like i i really got this concept when my son was a baby and he was learning to walk and my mom couldn't stand it because he was falling and so she kept picking him up and he would push and like want to get back down and he would fall again and he would get up and she would be like i don't understand what he's doing and i was like he's learning to walk Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. When he right. falls, he gathers so much information about how he got there. <sighs> then he gets up and he tries it again. In the falling is how he learns how to walk. Put my baby down. And I think sometimes, <laughs> right. well, part of it, I don't think we cheer on failure. I remember watching that, I think it's a Disney movie, Meet the Robinsons. Um, yeah. And remember the scene where he makes a mistake and the family starts to cheer? Like, I saw that before I was yes. a mom, so I got to use it as a cheat code. <laughs> and so my son will be like, I failed. And I'm like, hmm. ah, tell me what happened. And I'll be like, ooh, are you never going to do it again? Because you get to. And he's like, no, I'm going to go back and try. I was like, so you didn't fail. You messed up. And yay, what did you learn? Mm-hmm. Because that mess up will be different the next time if it even happens. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that means you learned. And so now he'll come down and say, oh, I messed up and I learned. Like he'll already have it together before he even brings it to me. Right. And I'm like, good job, bud. And he goes back upstairs and there's the resilience. The resilience that we, I'm going to say it, that a lot of us judge, especially our Gen Zers, and our younger millennials for not having when we have been snowplow parents who bulldozed any obstruction out of their way, we didn't let them fall. And now we're mad. They don't know how to walk. So Mm -hmm. we have to be okay with the fact that giving people permission to not be perfect, making sure that we know that their performance is not a reflection on us, especially Mm -hmm. as parents, 
that they get to mess up because they're humans, not just our children. Mm-hmm. And then recognizing like, am I failing or am I messing up? And why are either of those bad? Right. Hmm. Along those lines of getting back on the horse after you fall down, uh, that brings up the topic of progress. At least it does for me, which brings us to this next question. At Alyssa Carroll on Instagram asks, how do you measure progress in therapy? Mm. That's an interesting question for me because sometimes I'm like, oh, we're really getting there. When the client like cusses me out and like storms out, I'm like, yes, oh, we're fucking making it. This is the lot. So for me, Chef's kiss. yeah, for me, progress is clearer insight for you, being able to see yourself more clearly, maybe not even doing anything with it yet, but just being able to see yourself more clearly. Because I think a lot of us come into therapy being like, I'm crazy as a soup sandwich. Like this doesn't make sense. Why am I doing this? Why am I feeling this? Why am I behaving this way? And to just have some insight about, oh, that is the origin of that. That is why that is happening. Just, I think it just helps regulate people's nervous systems. It just helps people to know I'm not crazy and I'm actually not alone. Other people struggle with Mm. this too. And what I need to do is find my community and my supports and the people that can see me in all my versions and say, I love you. You're fine. Like, you know what I mean? In order to do that, I have to know me. And so for me, progress is knowing yourself better. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I really, I really, that really resonates with me. Um, I think, oh, it's happening. Sometimes I have a thought and it just leaves. (laughs) Anyway, great point, Courtney. (laughs) I do that as well. Um, (laughs) I try to send those to the other place with joy, just like thought. You were with me only briefly, but I wish you well wherever you have gone. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. Right. And have I failed at this transition? No. What I'm learning is that I am, (laughs) I get to try again. Right. (laughs) At Luke A. Schumann on Instagram asks, when is therapy not appropriate? Mm. So there are times where certain therapy isn't going to be helpful. So if someone is struggling with a substance addiction, then the type of therapy that they probably need is within the addictions arena. Someone who is currently on substances and it's an addiction and they cannot control it, You coming in and doing EMDR while you're intoxicated or inebriated or incapacitated is dangerous. So there are times when it's not safe to go deeper. Um, Someone who is maybe struggling um, with suicidality um, Mm -hmm. and 
that is something that will need to be worked on before their ability to keep themselves safe before we start digging into the trauma that might be a part of that experience. Mm-hmm. So there are some times you're more acute. For, for, um, for those who don't know, can you explain EMDR? Yeah, absolutely. I love EMDR. So EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And what it is, is a way to process trauma using bilateral stimulation. Bilateral stimulation is anytime we alternate interactions with the sides of the body. So it can be tapping It can be walking, moving your eyes rapidly across your meridian. Um, It can be tones beeping one after the other, but any type of bilateral stimulation. Um, And there's some parts of EMDR, which is slower tapping, that can be self-administered. But Mm -hmm. in order to do the trauma processing part, you need to work with someone who is a certified EMDR therapist. Because what you're going to be doing is looking at negative beliefs and core negative beliefs and the trauma and difficult experience attached to those beliefs and then processing them differently and then imprinting that processed belief into your long-term memory. So that's something you need to do wow. with a professional who is trained to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it is and, a and, beautiful and, tool. And, and you're saying that would not be appropriate necessarily for someone who is dealing with addiction. Um, right, like if your brain is not, if you are not in your sober mind in a moment, processing something of that nature is probably going to simply increase your cravings. Like in that moment, Mm. that is not something that you are centered and grounded enough in yourself to be doing because you're just not sober. I've thought about that a lot, Courtney. When people ask me like, what's the best type of therapy? It's like, (laughs) well, I mean, there's all these techniques and methodologies and philosophies and paradigms. They all kind of have like a situation they shine and then other places they don't really work as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I get the onus of trying to figure out the the one ring to rule them all of therapy, but (laughs) there, there really isn't. Yeah, it's so like, it's so interesting. If people were to sit in my sessions for a day, like hour long sessions for a day, they would be like, what, like, which therapy do you like? the most um and and also what do you what do you consider therapy because there's times where i'm like find the song put it on and let's dance Mm -hmm. where the therapy is we are going to dance and sing at the top of our lungs and give yourself permission to show up and take up space in the world in a way you never have before Mm -hmm. sometimes the therapy is i want you to take this pillow and i want you to scream until you feel like it's uh, it's off of you and in the pillow. Sometimes it's, I need you to grab this scarf and have a conversation with your grandmother who passed 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of different things for me because it's about how many things can I use to help someone see themselves more clearly. Mm-hmm. And whatever works for you is what I want to do. And it the different things work for different people. Mm-hmm. And whatever works for you up to maybe I'm not the therapist for you. Hmm. Sometimes that's the best intervention 
is I, I don't think I have what you need and you deserve to have what you need. Courtney, that brings us to what might end up being the last question of the evening. And you did the transition for me uh, talking about possibly ending a therapy relationship. That's what this next question is about. So at Sarah Nelmore on Instagram asks, what's the best way to leave or end a therapy Mm -hmm. relationship? Mm. So I think there's two parts to that. Leaving a therapeutic relationship because you've reached the end for you. You feel like you've gotten what you need and you're done with therapy. I think starts with just a very honest conversation with your therapist. Um, And most therapists will be talking with you about discharge and termination pretty early on anyway. Yeah, I'm the queen of we're going to titrate down and my people get freaked out. And I'm like, you've got this, you've got this. We're going to move to three weeks and then we're going to move to a month. And then after a couple of months, we're going to move to you're fine. Go live. I won't change my number. Come back if you need to. And so most therapists Mm -hmm. will already be talking about that. So it shouldn't be a shock if you say to the therapist, I really feel like I'm in a good space. Um, Several people, I've actually given that as their homework. I'm like, we're going to take a break for ther- from therapy for the summer. You did therapy all pandemic. You you get an A. And now you go have fun. <laughs> right. And I will see you in August. Like, we're, we're opening up. We're a little bit outside. Go be outside. So there's that kind. Right. And then there's, this was harmful. This wasn't okay. I don't feel safe. And for me, that ending of therapy is ending it. Hmm. If, if something happens that feels harmful, that doesn't feel safe, you don't feel like you can go back and address it, um, then discharge, discharge yourself by ending communication. It is totally appropriate because I think it can get dangerous if you are already not feeling safe and then you go back in and feel like you got manipulated. Um, yeah, I just... Yeah. If you are ending because of not feeling safe or seen or heard, then it's okay. Maybe send an email, but just say, you know, I appreciate our time and I would like to terminate services as of today. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if it, just cut the cord. Just cut the cord. But if it was a healthy relationship, just saying, you know, I feel really good and I appreciate it. And let's talk about discharge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Courtney, thank you so much for your wonderful insight tonight. Uh, We are literally perfectly ending right on time, which is but not ending yet. Oh, oh, but not ending yet. Not ending yet. We'll we'll (laughs) we'll 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 talk about how much we love Courtney in just a moment. Because first, everybody, here's your chance to get a sneak peek at the upcoming, uh, presumably mega hit podcast, "A Slight Change of Plans." We're going to watch a little uh, clip here or listen along, and then uh, we'll share some thoughts and then and then wrap up so here we go with a preview of a slight change of plans change is like this ever-present force shaping all of our lives but how does it really work i'm maya shunker and my life changed in a moment i had dreamed of being a concert violinist from the time i was a little kid 12 years old from cheshire connecticut we now have violinist maya shankar Music was my life. I practiced for hours and hours after school. And my big dreams were actually coming true. I was accepted at Juilliard, and my musical idol, Itzhak Perlman, invited me to be his violin student. 
So I hope to play with every orchestra in the world, perform everywhere. One day, I was rehearsing a challenging piece by Paganini, when all of a sudden, I heard a pop in my hand. The doctor examined my injury and told me I'd never be able to play again. Up until that moment, I was a violinist. And then, just like that, I wasn't. I was heartbroken and anxious. But at the same time, I was also a little excited by all the possibility. Fast forward two decades, and I'm now a cognitive scientist who actually studies how and why we change. My work has taken me to the Obama White House and the United Nations. And what I've come to realize from all these experiences is that there's this huge treasure trove of wisdom out there on how to navigate change. And it's not in a textbook. It's in people's stories. They're messy, complex, and sometimes magical stories. In this show, I'll have revealing, intimate conversations with a bunch of people, some well-known like Tiffany Haddish, Hillary Clinton, and Casey Musgraves, and some whose names you might not recognize. But all of them have lived through extraordinary change in their lives. Do I believe the truth because I know it's true and change my direction, or do I continue living a lie? Everything I had and everything I believed and thought and experienced was on the line. And I suddenly thought to myself, maybe you are telling people to do something that you wouldn't do yourself. We'll be diving deep into the world of change and hopefully come out thinking a bit differently about change in our own lives. I'm Maya Shunker, and this is A Slight Change of Plans, coming May 20th from Pushkin Industries. I, like, told you guys shit that I haven't, literally haven't told anyone else, so. Hats off to the producer of that clip because yeah. I got all my little weepies coming on. Mm-hmm. I love the, the I was a violinist and then suddenly I wasn't. So I'm all in the hook and then I'm like, you know, just just when that tear's about to roll down, the uh, that last thing. <laughs> I've told y'all shit I haven't told anybody. Then I start laughing. It sounds like that's Casey Musgraves. That sounded like Casey it Musgraves. might be. I'm yeah, that I'm gonna have to check out that show for sure, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, available everywhere. Podcasts are available. Speaking of things available everywhere, podcasts are available. So is this appearance of the Cozy Robot Show with Courtney? Uh, you know, Courtney, I just adore you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us tonight. Um, I didn't just learn a lot. I had a lot of fun. Hmm. So, <laughs> you know, that's my, us. that's what I like to do. Fun and yes. sad can be happening at the same time. Fun and hard yeah. can happen at the same yes. time. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, we've done it. We've made another episode of the Cozy Robot Show. Uh, I'd like to thank, of course, Courtney for being here. I'd also like to thank every single Cozy Robot who makes this show possible. I'll see you in right around 20 minutes for the after party 
on our Discord server. If you want to join us, go to CozyRobots.com to find out how. Uh, and the Cozy Robot Show has been made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. I stand by that as objective fact and not my opinion. <laughs> the show's producers are Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. Music was written and recorded by Madison and Macy McCarg. Uh, production support by Amy Hill. Social media management, Grace Vaughn. Designed by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. Set design right behind me by Jesse Lane Interiors. Wardrobe stylist and craft services, Jenny McCarg. Everybody, thanks for being here both live <laughs> and in recorded versions. And we can't wait to talk to you again next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Take care. Bye. The Cozy Robot Show.